Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. Look, I know you want to get to the podcast. I'm going to keep this short. When it comes to opera, we're the only ones bringing you everything you need to know about the art form, the people, and the stories you know, we every haven't damn done a roundup week. of other podcasts about opera late, lately. Uh, we, know mean, we, we love Aria Code, but there are other shows out there. There's like Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll, or Opera, Drugs, and Rock, is that what it's called? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, but there are other people out there. So we don't know if, if other people are bringing people the stories they need to know every week. These are other really great yeah. opera podcasts for me to poop on. <laughs> hey, check it out. Five bucks buys an ad on social media. Ten bucks covers our website for a month. Twenty bucks makes a hundred lapel pins. So if you haven't seen our ads on social media, it's because we don't have five bucks. Or maybe five bucks isn't enough to cover our ads on social media or maybe we need to learn how to build the audience for those things look you know? 20 bucks that's enough to l- buy a face mask for our whole team so they don't catch coronavirus we can share the mask yeah that is not gonna work <laughs> yes right. the can- mask is not even gonna work we're all doomed the olympics are canceled thank mm. you matt cummings look don't think you can give oh yes you can simply review us on apple podcasts share our facebook posts or just retweet okay. us it. and tell people hey i like this podcast and that guy oliver here he's Most of all, keep listening to America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show that's normally live, but just a podcast for now about opera, period, from the Ravenswood studio right here on the north side of Chicago. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, connecting you via video conferencing technology with co-hosts Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, on this episode, it's our Mother Day's Spectacular... Ashley Hardgrave talks to seven artists and administrators who navigated partnership at parenting while at the top of their operatic game. Then, George and Oliver play through their regions of Michigan Opera Theater's greatest opera bracket, Carmen vs. Dalila and True Love vs. Cunagonda. Stay tuned for the winners of those two regions as we head towards the final four next week. Two-minute drill. La Scala forges ahead with plans to reopen this September. Will that decision end up as one of our future bad calls? I certainly hope not. Let's talk a little bit of sports before we get into it. Colin Cowherd, who has his own show now on Fox, but used to be one of the major radio personalities at ESPN, has a mantra that to see if something makes sense, you just say it out loud. That's the test. Say it out loud. So, for example, if I said, we're going to get 100,000 people in Michigan Stadium this September to watch football, you would say that's insane. That is how far away we are from figuring out this pandemic and trying to get back to any sort of normalcy. I will let you do the math and figure out what that timeline is going to be for the opera house that you run, the opera house where you sing, the opera house where you go see the shows. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not going to be soon. All right, let's talk some opera. going to throw it over to Oliver and Ashley. Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. 
So, Oliver, uh, on this Mother's Day week episode, um, I want to tell you a story. So I'd heard the story of this woman. She had boarded a bus from a Louisville Army base every week in the late 1940s, and it was to go to her voice lesson. It was her one moment away from the Army base, and turns out she was very good. Her teacher was so moved by her talent that he organized a trip for her to New York City to study with a leading teacher who was going to undoubtedly launch her career. Um, Without hesitation, she declined. She was the wife of a staff sergeant, and she had two young children, and women just didn't leave to pursue careers. It simply wasn't done. She knew her place. She knew her role. That woman was my grandmother, Alma Luella Waits Hargrave, and I was horrified by this story as a kid. I did not understand why anybody would stand in the way of talents and dreams and it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I learned a little more about cultural hallmarks of women in that era in the South that I actually got it. I started to see the implicit nudges to this in my own upbringing and education 50 years later, and I was perplexed by this mixed messaging that women would receive about who they were supposed to be. Uh, even more confused when those hallmarks of traditional feminine success, the partnership, the motherhood, were all but shunned at the beginning of my opera training. Those were career killers, we were told, and you would never be seen as dedicated enough to succeed. And so now, almost 60 years later, we're going to connect with figures in the opera world who have become mothers and see where this conversation stands. We learn their stories, we learn how they make it work, and what advice they would give to others in the industry who might be considering a similar path. We will speak with opera singers Janai Brugger, Juliet Peters, Brenda Ray, and Laura Strickling, conductor Lydia Yankovskaya, the executive director of Long Beach Opera, Jennifer Rivera, and the executive director of Opera Atelier, Alexandra Scotchulis. And I just want to give our audience also a little insight that this, the idea to this sort of popped into your mind while we were interviewing Lydia Yankovskaya a couple of months ago, or a couple of weeks ago, like, we were wrapping up the interview and Lydia seemed like she wanted to talk about motherhood and was like, oh, we could do a whole episode on this. So props to Lydia for, <laughs> for giving us this idea in addition to your grandmother's story. Yeah, well, and it's it was both of those things. Uh, so I, Lydia mentioned this and I immediately thought of that story of my grandmother and I immediately thought of the story of some of the women that I went to school with and some of the things that were told to me. And it just seemed like this huge macro issue around what women are told in one part of their life and what women might be told in another part of their life when they're getting ready to pursue careers specifically in this art form. Uh, and it dawned on us that no one was talking about it. So we decided to talk about it. Yes. There's lots of uh, white males podcasting out there. <laughs> <laughs> this episode might not be for everyone, but for the people that it's right for, I'm very excited about it. So we asked each of these uh, women about their family structure. We asked them about their partnership status. We asked them how many children they have and what their family life looked like. We start with soprano Janai Brugger. We have one son. Uh, he is seven years old. He turned seven in February. Um, and right now it's a lot of homeschooling <laughs> um, because of the pandemic. But um, yeah, he traveled a lot with me as a baby uh, all, all the way up until he started um like kindergarten. So, but yeah, we're just, just the three of us thus far. 
And next, soprano Juliet Petrus. So I am married. I have a husband who uh, is not a musician, which in these days is a lovely, lovely thing. <laughs> and we have a son um, who is 10 years old. Soprano Brenda Ray. Well, I have two kids. I have update. He's a four-year-old now. He had a birthday last month. Oh, so happy belated. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks. He had, it was kind of a weird birthday due to all the social distancing, but yeah. hey, he got cake and balloons and presents. So I really think that's all he cared about. I mean, for a four-year-old, uh, that seems like it's, that's a pretty good day. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then I have a 10-month-old. He, and he just started crawling today, so my life is changing by the minute. Soprano Laura Strickling. So I have one daughter. She is three years old, and her name is Elizabeth. And I am married uh, to a, uh, a lawyer. Uh, so when I am out of town to go on singing trips, because I live on an island in the Caribbean where not a lot of classical music happens. So when I'm working, I'm traveling. Uh, he is a solo dad, and he actually is an A-plus solo dad. Long Beach Operist Jennifer Rivera. I have one child. He's seven years old. His name is Jackson. And my husband, Michael, um, who works from home, um, we are both former opera singers, gone in other directions. My husband completely another direction and works in recruiting. And I am now the executive director of an opera company. Um, but uh, so yeah, we just have our one child, Jackson. He's seven and he is a big handful, but we really like him a lot. <laughs> opera Atelier's Alexandra Scotulus. I have a very traditional at-home structure. There's me and my husband and I, we have two wonderful kids. I have a 16-year-old girl and an 11-year-old boy. Um, I would say that although that's a very traditional structure, what's great and very 21st century um, and is that we, we all, we share everything. My husband and I share all the tasks around the house. Um, so he does all the laundry, which is amazing. Um, we both cook and clean. Um, right now he's doing all the grocery shopping. So yeah, so a traditional structure, but I guess a more 21st century way of approaching um, the tasks that we need to do as a family. And conductor Lydia Yankovskaya. I'm married and I have a kid and we travel together all over the country. Um, my husband often comes with us for parts of the time and other times we live here in Chicago. We asked our artists if during their education they observed any implicit or explicit references to how having a partner or starting a family could impact a career. Responses were mixed. I actually got married really young. My husband and I met in high school and we married before, um, right before I started grad school. And I was advised to not wear my wedding rings to my grad school opera auditions because um, they would, because I was told, actually, and even to my, my engagement ring to my grad school auditions, period, um, because I was told that if, if they thought I had um, those kind of linkages, <laughs> they, they would, that that would be a, a sign that I wasn't dedicated to the career. And then when I was in grad school, um, my husband and I were thinking about um, doing Peace Corps and we were looking into it and I asked someone at the school, you know, we were thinking about doing Peace Corps for a year after I graduate, you know, is, is that something like, will I still be able to have a career if I take a year off? And I was told explicitly, like, absolutely not. If, you, if you're not dedicated, uh, then then you need to like find a different path. And it's kind of ironic because I didn't sing for three years after grad school. <laughs> 
<laughs> for a com- you know for completely different reasons. But I I decided not to to pursue a career for three years after grad school, and you know I kind of did everything you could possibly do wrong wrong, and I'm somehow still singing. When I was in school, I think there was a belief that if you wanted to be a professional artist, you had to give everything up and just do your art. And you had to marry your career, so to speak. And I think it's not just exclusive to the arts. I think this was the view in certain other fields as well. Uh, For me, that was never something I wanted to do. Uh, It wasn't worth it. And right from the beginning, I knew that I wanted to conduct. And I knew that I wanted to make great music with great people. Um, And I only wanted to do that as long as I could also have a life. Because to me, art is a reflection of our lives. And if we don't have lives, what is the art we're making? What do we have to say? Why why is anything we have to say worthwhile? Um, And so from the beginning, I did have many teachers who said to me, you shouldn't have relationships, you shouldn't pursue it. You should just focus on your career. My husband and I have been together since I was in college. Um, And I have to say that without him, I wouldn't have a career because he has been my support system and my rock from day one, both practically speaking, emotionally speaking, in so many ways. The fact that if I had rehearsal until 10 p.m. or 10 to 10 every day for many days, especially when I was first starting out, that I could come home and someone had dinner waiting for me. Or if I forgot something at home, someone would drop it off for me and I would do the same for him and his career. Um, And we both have major careers in very different fields and we both supported each other through that. I don't remember anyone really explicitly or implicitly um, telling me anything. I don't know if I didn't bring up the conversation about it. Um, There was very near the end of my music education when I started getting in touch with managers. Mm -hmm. There were some who said, you know, it's okay to have a family, but you should really only have one kid. It's much easier. I mean, it's never going to be easy, but uh, if you want to have a serious career, then it'd probably be best to just have one. But then I had two, and this person who I'm talking about is actually okay with the fact that I had to I think they just they're they're saying it out of a place of concern because they've seen so many other careers go awry because of um, certain familial dynamics but I have a very understanding and helpful partner I mean everything's just kind of worked out for me with a lot of communication on our part but yeah for sure um I, I, most of my teachers had children also. So it was Mm -hmm. something I saw and I, they might not have had the kind of career that I'm having, but they, they were musicians and then they went into teaching and they've all had families. So it it was kind of natural for me to think, oh yeah, I can have a family someday. You know, when I was in college thinking about it, I, you know, you always hear conflicting stories, like how, how difficult it is to have a successful opera career and have a family and yada, yada, yada. And, and to some extent that's true, but I think I was always a person, as soon as someone tells me I can't, I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll see about that. You know, I don't like to be told no, <laughs> especially if it's something I really, really want, you know? So, but yeah, sure. Like anything you have to find a balance and what works for you. We then asked if when considering partnership or starting a family, where career prospects fell in that hierarchy? Were they concerned at all about losing out on work or jobs by making the choice to pursue partnership or a family? When I got pregnant with him, um, it was after my second summer as a young artist with Glimmer Glass Opera in New York. Uh And I 
you know, you're fed this story as a young artist that, you know, you, you know, in order to have a viable career, one has to get into this many young artist programs or this echelon of young artist program. And then you're set after that. Yes. Yes. But <laughs> um, I found, you know, kind of the hard way. And I don't think that my experience is, is all that uncommon is that, that just simply isn't the case. You know, it's a cycle. And once you've aged out of that cycle, mm -hmm. uh, unless you are fortunate enough to have a support system, a professional support system, somebody who, who really is supportive of you, whether that's a manager, an agent, or somebody who is supporting you, helping to support you financially, um, there is really not much there. It has certainly changed. It used to be like, accept every good offer that comes by. And sure. now I look at it a little more carefully. Um, I still tend to accept a lot because we're mm -hmm. optimists and we're like, hey, if it doesn't work this one time, then we'll change it for the next time. Mm -hmm. But I do try to make sure if I'm away for a long period of time, then I need to have some time off at the end of that gig to sure. come home, spend time with everyone. Because right now my littlest, my 10 month old is traveling with me. Oh, wow. And up until my firstborn was three, he and my husband traveled with me the entire uh -huh. time. So it was very easy in that way. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't easy, but it was easy because we got to be together and I didn't right. have to worry about not seeing them for a long period of time. Uh, but now, now we really have to make sure that I don't spend too much time away because it just is too painful for all of us. Um, of course. And now that we're based in America again, I, was, I lived in Germany for 10 years. And oh, sure. Uh, it used to be very easy to go away for a one-night gig, you know, a concert. Uh, but now I think a little more carefully about it. If I have to make that <laughs> journey from Minneapolis, which has a great international airport, but if I have to go from Minneapolis um, to, say, Munich, and it's just a one-concert event, I might think, ooh, is it, is it going to be worth it? Is it going to be too hard? Do I want to bring my kid? Do I'm going to have to find childcare for that, you know, for, the, for those few days that I go abroad right. and I'm going to have to do a long haul flight with a child, which is not the most fun. I mean, I might not even be the right person to, to do this interview just because I had a, well, no, seriously, like I had a crazy good situation in that both my mom and my father-in-law and sometimes my dad would travel everywhere with me. So I always had, and they all liked it, you know, and like wanted to do it. So I always had somebody family with me to take care of Jackson. Um, and, you know, that and the fact that I just happened to have like a bunch of really nice directors and people that I worked with that I wasn't like, I wasn't one of those number of people that have had all these like really challenging situations as a result of being a mom. Like I, I for whatever reason, kind of hit the lottery in that department. When asked if there were role models while they were going through the process of becoming a mother, Responses were were mixed, but there is a name that all of our listeners will recognize. For me, role models at that time, I was looking at Renee Fleming. You know, I read her book and about how she had her kids and was still traveling and singing. Um, another role model I looked up to, and she probably doesn't even know, Sarah Colburn. Um, when I met her, she had a little girl. She didn't have her second child yet. Um, and I met her uh, during LA Opera. We were doing, uh, oh gosh, I can't remember the, the opera now. I'm drawing a blank. But she had her daughter with her and a nanny. 
And I just remember seeing like, okay, seeing how that worked. Uh, Diana Damerel uh, <clears throat> had hers. Um, so those were the, the, the biggest ones that I can remember. And I was seeing like, okay, I can see it works. You know, there's everybody's story and path was different, but they all said it's doable. And that's, that's all I needed to know. It was like, okay, this is still possible. I never got to meet Diana or Miss Renee Fleming, but I did. I remember asking Sarah, she's such a sweet, amazing colleague and mother and so it was nice to chat with her briefly about it. I always loved hearing about the fact that Renee Fleming had two kids. Um, mm-hmm. And I I met her backstage after one of my performances at Juilliard once, and she had brought her child. And I was just, you know, this kid seemed like a normal kid. And I was like, oh, goodness. She's, you know, Renee Fleming is like the opera superstar. And yet she was able to raise these two like seemingly amazing daughters. And uh, of course it took a lot of work, but I loved seeing that, that even the woman who has put so much into her career was able to also put so much into her family. So the very first time I remember someone in the industry saying something positive about motherhood was um, in 2012. I was a part of uh, the Marilyn Horn masterclass series at Carnegie Hall. And she made some offhanded comment about, you know, having her child was the best thing she'd ever done. And literally it struck me. And I remember it to this day because it was the first time someone said that, um, that, you know, having a child was important to them and it didn't, you know, ruin their career or ruin their, you know, their, their dedication to their art. And it just, the thing that had been hammered into me on every summer program and every educational experience was kind of, you know, you need to be dedicated to this to make it happen. And if you're not, you probably won't have a career and it does make it harder, but it it's also, I agree with Marilyn. <laughs> it's the best thing I've ever done. And I'm so glad I did it and I would not change it for the world. But one of the things that was fascinating is that when I got pregnant and I started looking for people I could talk to who've done this and kind of how they made it work, I couldn't find in this country a working conductor who was uh, who had carried and given birth to a child. Marin Alsop has a child, but um, I, I don't think she was the one who carried her child. And uh, but uh, but other and there are other conductors who had kids and then they became um, conductors or then they took on major positions. But I really couldn't find anyone who had a very active conducting career who had been pregnant and had a child during this career. There were people in Europe, Simone Young is a really well-known example of someone who's had a major, major career um, and abroad. But of course, the way things are set up abroad are very different and the kinds of support systems that exist um, and even the kinds of laws that exist around these things are very different. And that, that to me just became very shocking and very eye-opening. Um, and also the si- sorts of things I started hearing that I'd never heard before, including from singers and other friends who had had kids who were telling me about the kind of discrimination they faced um, while they were pregnant or when they came back to work. And it was just mind-boggling to me that this was a reality and that this was something that was out there. Just starting out, there were some arts managers who were up ahead of me. There was a marketing and development director who used to bring her kids in on the weekends and they would kind of like hang out in the office and and play with, you know, back in the day when computer paper came in long, (laughs) long things. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. The little edges, the little perforated edges you tear off. So they would be playing with stuff. And I heard stories about that 
um, they're, um, you know, even the musicians that I worked with at Tafel Music were really supported by the organization. So, you know, I would see all the pictures of the musicians going on tour with their kids. And so the whole idea of family being welcome at the organization is um, how I kind of grew up in the arts. And I think it's uh, really refreshing. I think it sort of laid the groundwork for me being completely comfortable to, to build a family without it being a big deal. That's what it should be for everyone. A topic that came up with frequency were the demands and challenges put on the body during a pregnancy. What happens in those nine months and the first few back at work. The road to recovery and the return to work, we learned, is different for everyone. He was due February 9th and I had him February 1st. So he okay. was he was good. Oh, okay. But the because of gestational diabetes, the worry is that the babies can get too big. You know, like birth, they like scared me that I was going to have like a 13 pound child. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> but he was seven pounds. But they put me on a strict diet. So thank God my gestational diabetes was controlled via diet, changing my diet. So I had a very, very strict diet, which, you know, the third trimester for me was November through January. So you have Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Eve, my 30th birthday, and I can't have sweets, <laughs> sugar, like carbs. It was cruel, you know. <laughs> the result was good at the end, but man, it was rough. <laughs> oh, man. Yep. I mean, I know it was worth it, but I'm sure there were a couple of moments, especially around Thanksgiving, where you were just a little mad. Just a little oh mad. Oh, my God. They're like, you can have one little teaspoon of key lime pie. I'm like, really? Have you been to a Black Thanksgiving? Like, we don't do a spoonful of nothing. <laughs> oh, okay, we eat. <laughs> I sang up through about the middle of my seventh month. I remember doing a recital in Chicago on, on, about motherhood, actually, um, at the Cultural Center. And it felt so incredibly nice to sing because, you know, his head was like nuzzled up against like underneath my diaphragm. So every time I would take a breath, I could feel that like resistance. And it was it was amazing. And I thought, ah, you know, I I I would get pregnant again, not really, just to, <laughs> just to have that sensation of, of that sort of resistance. Um, and, and also, you know, your, your ribs are, everything is, your ribs are out because everything is displaced and your right. body is actually in a really good place to, to sing. Um, if you're not, you know, crippled by nausea, which I also was, but that was getting better by that point. Um, so that was my last real experience singing before he was born. And then after he was born, um, and I will say that I had, I chose to have a natural pregnancy. I didn't do any drugs, uh, although that had to change a little bit because we had to give him his eviction notice. As I said, he was two weeks late and he was just not coming out. Um, and <laughs> oh, they had to singing, give me, that's why. yeah, I know that <laughs> he had to, it actually is very fitting of his personality as he's gotten older. <laughs> we can totally see him just being comfortable, not really wanting to move. Um, and so they had to give me medication, but then the rest of the process was was natural. And I'll even go so far to say that I was very lucky. I did not experience any, any physical damage to myself during the birthing process. Um, I sang through the 15 hours of labor uh, which the nurses wow. loved because it was the only way that I could access those really deep muscles that I was needing to use to kick him out of my uterus. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Do you remember what you um, were saying? Was it like, 
Queen of the Night. Well, <laughs> scales. I was thinking scales and and runs just to to feel that feeling of you know as I go up needing to go down. So I kept going up, I, and I frankly didn't really have much of a voice for the next week. It was as if I had been singing <laughs> for fifteen hours straight. Um, pretty much had no voice at the end of my birthing process. Um, and then of course me being me, uh, felt a lot of pressure to, uh, do two things when I was, when he was finally born, um, which I look back on now and just say, Oh, couldn't you have been kinder to yourself? I felt, uh, I felt the pressure to get vocally back in shape rather quickly because I knew seven weeks out, I was going to have to start these rehearsals and physically too. Um, I'm a pretty small person put on a lot of weight, a lot of water weight too, during my pregnancy, um, and really struggled to, to look in the mirror and be happy with what I was seeing, despite the fact that I knew that my body had just created a human, right. Um, You know, probably be, coming from a dance background and being a gymnast and being a very physical person, it was really hard to look at myself in, in the mirror and see what the effect of pregnancy had been. The first gig back was utterly insane because it was, was singing uh, in Agrippina at the Berlin Staatsoper. And I had just oh, had given birth three months ago. So it involved international travel and time changes. It involved a really big company, a really hard role. Um, luckily, we had already done the production once before, so it wasn't a brand new production, but you know, a very demanding conductor. Um, I, I, it's like a whirlwind now. I can't even. I remember this one time where I was like, you know, in in Agrippina, I sing Nerone, and he has a an aria at the very end of the opera, like this four hour opera, this extremely humongous aria, you know, big tour de force. And I, I mean, I didn't sleep at all in the first like six months of my son's life, like zero. He was the worst sleeper ever, and I was breastfeeding. And um, I remember like being like backstage before singing that aria before one performance, having not slept at all, and it was like you know who knows eleven at night, and I was about to go, and I was like, what am I doing? This is I can't do this. This is crazy. But it's actually amazing what adrenaline will do for you. And I managed to get through all the shows. I didn't get sick. Um, you know, my mom would bring my son sometimes at intermission because they were kind of long shows so I could nurse him. Um, it was crazy. I can't believe I did that, actually. And I have so much respect for people who do that all the time because it is... Uh, having a child and like not sleeping and trying to sing is really an impossible situation. But the good news is as a singer, you kind of are like, Oh my God, I can't believe I have this amazing capacity to be able to do this. I always thought I needed eight hours of sleep to sing, but now I only got like one and I'm still singing and I can do it. So in a certain sense, you feel like superhuman. Um, but in general, it was, that was tough. The first six months of his life were very tough. Um, Although I somehow managed to do it. After my first child was born, I had another, gosh, I think two months before I started rehearsals. So it was a slow start, which was good because my first roll back after my first child was Lulu. Sure. As okay. You, you know, something easy, something light. Uh, in the park. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And I... You know, I didn't have too many breakdowns, which is impressive, if I do say so myself. I only had, like, one real, like, I'm never going to be able to do this <laughs> moment. But, um, you know, it, it came, like, a week before rehearsal started, and I was just 
I mean, Lulu is definitely the hardest role I've ever done, but also it was so exciting to do and to learn. And I love, I ended up loving it so much and knowing I could get through a role like that, uh, where my kid, my seven month old at the time was waking up for, you know, an hour at the, uh, at a time. And he only would re- calm down if I was the one calming him. So it was like, right. my husband was, I would love to help, but I can't. And so yeah, I Here's could get through a whole performance like a, that. Just a bit of gay man vanity here. Um, how did you feel about your body oh, seven months after giving birth uh, and performing a role like Lulu, which is, you know, supposed to be as sexual as any of the opera gets, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I was a little... Um, I, I didn't feel great. I felt fine once I was on stage though because when I when I get on stage I just kind of stop thinking about any self-confidence yeah. issues uh you, yeah um that's a healthy exercise a, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah uh it was scary the first <laughs> costume fitting it, it's the production that they have at the Met which I'm scheduled to do next year but I was doing it at ENO and they had done it in Amsterdam already and mm-hmm. at the Met already so I knew that they had a costume design and I thought, oh, well, surely they'll they'll change the costume design for me because I'm not comfortable in it. No, no. <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, I mean, William Kentridge, the designer, was very positive. He's like, no, you look, you, you have good legs. You have good, you know, he'd just say your body is good. And I don't think he necessarily even meant like, no, you look like a model. It wasn't that. He's like, you have a good, strong body. This is your body. Don't be ashamed of it. OBS wants to bring you advice for those considering these paths. Here is what these women have to offer. Oh, yeah. I mean, I whenever I speak to young kids, you'll be surprised that that's one of the first things I get asked is, how do you balance or how do you have a child and a husband and, and do this career? And like I said, I think you just, it's finding the right kind of balance that works for you. You know, I can't compare my trajectory and my path to Sarah or any of my other colleagues that have kids because everybody's different. Um, it was about having support. I had a lot of family support and help, thankfully. Um, my son came with me everywhere and, you know, and until they're two, they're free. So that helped (laughs) with costs. Um, my husband traveled, uh, a lot to come see us and be with us. So we never went more than a week at that time when he was born, uh, being apart. And, and that was because he was teaching. So it was easier for him to have that flexibility in, and some people, they don't have that. So it just, like I said, depends. And my manager was super, super, super supportive. Um, it's good to have somebody in your corner in the industry that can negotiate your contracts, neg- take care of all that stressful stuff so that you, it, to make it as easy as possible. So just have surrounding yourself with your network of people that have your best interest at hand, support you, encourage you, finding your balance and anything is possible as long as you do the work and you want it. There really is no one path toward it. Um, There are women who have kind of solidified their professional life first and then attempted to add a personal life. And then there are people who have, you know, found the, the personal, you know, partner, life first and then attempted to grow their professional life. 
And then there are people, maybe I think I might even put myself in that middle category of trying to do it at the same time, but it's never exactly at the same time. It's always one kind of takes the lead and the other one hangs back a little bit and then they switch. It's sort of like, you know, they're just constantly edging forward, hopefully, but at different paces. Um, be okay with the fact that your path to being a professional musician and also a mother is may not look like anybody else's. Um, and in that, not comparing your path to anybody else's. I guess I wish I had known that it's okay not to have a perfect plan. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's really important to stay open because you can you can try to you can imagine what your life is going to look like but you have to stay open because everything's going to be different when you're actually experiencing it and I think we we did my family has done a good job of shifting into that mindset like okay this is not working for us let's do it differently um but my advice there is never a perfect time to start the family, but there are better times. You know, everyone has told me, oh, there's never a perfect time. So just go ahead and have kids. And I'm like, that's true. This is true. But but there are certain roles you definitely don't want to have to cancel. And there are certain roles that you don't want to cancel, but you are okay with canceling. Like that happened with me. I had to cancel a Lucia in Munich and a Sabinetta at La Scala. And it's like, oh, that's really painful. But I can give those up because they weren't going to ruin my career by not doing them. Um, and also, I think um, I was very lucky to have things after the birth of my children, like contracts that came and I knew they were going to happen. Because if you don't have anything after a birth of a child, sometimes it can be really difficult to start up again. And it's sure. not always possible to have that future plan, to have those future contracts. But if you are able to, it, it, it'll give you a lot less of a headache and a lot less stress in your life. I would say ultimate flexibility, like because every singing situation is different. Um, you never know if it's going to be easy to bring your kid or if it's going to be hard to bring your kid. You never know if it's going to be financially uh, um, uh, feasible to bring your, your child. Um, sometimes the housing is just too expensive if you have to bring your child. I have wanted to bring my child on some gigs and not been able to because I couldn't afford to. It was cheaper to leave her at home uh, and um, been away from her for three weeks just because I couldn't financially bring her along. Um, so just being flexible, understanding that mom guilt is real and never goes away and learning to live with that guilt and, and accept it and understand that everyone lives life differently and everyone has their own normal. So my kids normal is that sometimes mommy's gone um, and we find ways to connect when I am gone. Um, and as long as I feel like she is you know, still healthy and happy and knows that she is loved and safe. Um, that, that helps a little bit with the mom guilt, but it does not go away. <laughs> uh, it's what it is, but you know, just kind of knowing that your normal is your normal and, and you don't have to compete with anyone. I think for singers in general, like I think the moment you realize you're not competing with anyone else ever for anything, it's just doing what you want to do uh, because it fulfills your artistic needs and, and you feel like it's bringing joy to the world and, and your audience and you're making a difference. Um, you know, that's, that all feeds into that. 
<laughs> I negotiated the travel and the time changes and the no sleep by making not making myself a priority any longer um, and not getting all uptight about it. You know, it, it's funny, before you have a child, you know, your voice is like your child in a certain way and you're like nurturing this instrument and it's, you, it's hard to focus on anything outside of that. Um, and then you have this person outside your body that like needs you and you realize that that is not as important as you thought it was before. Um, and so I didn't care if I got sick. I didn't, all I cared about was that he was good and healthy and happy. And for me, that made me sing better, perform better, and just be a better human. My main piece of advice is actually not about how to travel and how to alter your life and stuff. It's that if you're thinking about having a kid and you're not sure that you can do it because of your arts career, I think you should do it because you'll figure out a way and it really will make you like understand your own self as an artist better because you, you, you get outside of yourself in a way that you haven't experienced before. So, I mean, not that people who don't have children are not great artists, but I'm, I just think, especially for people who are, you know, who have, have a lot of stress and worry about their, their themselves as artists. I think that, um, having a child can can alleviate some of that in a certain way because you have another thing to focus on. For anyone, the advice would be to really look out for um, arts um, organizations, like try try to get yourself into an arts organization that is um, accepting and welcoming and um, welcomes families. And I think you can, you can, you can, you know, it's a small industry. We can, we can, we know what's happening in other places. And, and I think just having like conversations with people and learning about the places where you might feel that is a good and supportive place for you to be. So um, that's one thing, um, you know, doing some planning is another, um, you know, I'll just, I'll just jump in on and just kind of mention that I, in, in preparing for this conversation, I talked to a couple of singers um, and, you know, I cannot pretend to speak for the artists at all. I'm an administrator, I'm a man, an arts manager, but, um, you know, there's a lot of planning involved for them. So I think everyone has to think, we all have to think about that. How does it fit into our life, the timing? The other part around that, um, that I can't help anybody with is that you can plan all you want, but sometimes uh, getting pregnant doesn't happen the way you think it might, right? And kids change things in ways that you may never imagine, right? So those are things that you can't plan for and that we all have to be uh, open and flexible, I guess. Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I'll start by advice to people who are in a position of power, because I think that's the most important thing. I think those of us who are in a position to do anything for artists have to anticipate and have to make a point of doing so. Um, this year at COT, actually, in the coming season, we have uh, three married couples performing over the course of the season. And in no case are they people that I uh, that we cast or that I cast because they were married to someone else. In fact, in some cases, actually, I think it helped me get a better casting than I otherwise could have, could have scored. Um, but being aware that people are human beings, so that something like that can help. Uh, thinking about the kind of housing options you offer to artists and to what extent you can help them find that housing as opposed to just leaving it all on the 
artists themselves to do all of the legwork. It's always much easier if you have connections within the city you live in. And if you have the opportunities to offer resources with childcare or something else um, to really offer that to people. I'm lucky my mom travels with me, so I have built-in childcare. But I think also to those of us who are doing this as performing artists, I think it's important to find opportunities to talk about this. And just like you guys are giving this platform uh, to everyone, I think we can, uh, for a long time, there was also this thought that if you do have kids, you shouldn't, or you have a family, you shouldn't talk about it ever. And I felt that way at the beginning of my career, that I just shouldn't talk about it. I should only talk about my conducting. Um, and I, I think in a way that is a disservice to other people who have families or lives or who want to have families or lives. Because the most important thing is having a family, it's not like a medical condition or an illness to get pregnant, right? And have a child. And there's this view, like it's almost like, oh no, they have, uh, they got pregnant, so they they can't do anything. But it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. And no one would say, well, we're not going to hire you in case you get a stomach bug or in case you get the flu and you can't perform. But I, I, I mean, I don't know the statistics of this, but I can't imagine that having major complications statistically is that much more likely than like having the flu or having some other kind of medical or other thing come up. Or um, So that that's always uh, been really shocking to me that we see it as kind of like a, a, an illness, uh, which it's not. Um, but I, and I think it's changing the viewpoints. I think it's talking about it. I think it's being open about the fact that we're human beings and that we have families and that that in itself enriches our art. That makes us better at what we do. That makes us um, have a wider perspective um, in terms of the people we represent on stage, both as singers or as a conductor. I have to shape these people um, uh, in the drama of the music. And I think it's given me a much wider perspective. It's also given me a much better sense of myself. Because when you're just worrying about yourself and your art, uh, already this is a job that can lead to so many insecurities. It's so hard what we do emotionally and mentally. Um, and when you're just worrying about yourself and your art, uh, the kinds of... Um, questions and insecurities and worries and concerns that it brings up can be very counterproductive, as we all know, as performing artists. Because when you're up there, you can't be worrying about that. You have to just be worrying about making the music happen, right? Um, and I think having, for me anyway, having a kid also gave me a totally different perspective because if something goes wrong in a performance, it doesn't feel like it's the end of the world to me because it's the only thing I live for, right? It doesn't make me any less dedicated. In fact, maybe even more so, but it gives me a different kind of focus and it allows me to let go of anything extra that might get in the way of the music. So, Oliver, what have we learned? Well, I mean, everybody's story seems to be so different, but they all, I think what, what the takeaway for me is that singers are people who know how to, you know, negotiate a situation, improvise, and figure out what's going to work for them. And I, some of them had it easier than others, I have to say. But, you know, not that being a mother is in any way easy. You know, you you need a support system, you need to, you know, have health care, <laughs> obviously, and you need to have a husband who's willing to do their part. That's, I think, the, the common thread. All of them were so, you know, they all praised that their partners were, were a major part in helping them do both be mothers and be artists. 
Exactly. You know, for me, it was uh, the culture around these ideas is shifting. Thank you very much in part to these seven incredible women. Uh, I learned that it does, in fact, take a village to raise a child in the form of supportive partners and friends and management and most importantly, supportive arts organizations. Uh, and I also love that it, it it is possible if you want to do it. And if you do not want to do it, that is okay too. Uh, there's no right or wrong way to do this. If you choose not to do this, this is also okay. And the thing that really rang true for me for all of these women is that the best tools they had at their disposal were honesty and, and self-awareness about what they wanted, what they were capable of, and, and when, when they had to ask for help and put up limits and sometimes say no. Yeah. Well, I feel like we just scratched the surface and I know that there are other types of mothers and family structures that we, we seem to all find the mothers that were married and had helpful families, you know, and uh, we didn't talk to single mothers. We didn't talk to people who maybe decided not to go through with it, you know, and, and, um, well, we don't know what these people's stories are, but, um, we are beginning this topic and I'm so glad that you wanted to do this. And I'm so glad that, you know, all of these, people, these artists and administrators were so, so open about their experiences and that we want to hear from you all. Um, and we want to, you know, we want to know who you want us to talk to, uh, to go further into this topic, but I think it's a great start. And, uh, we do celebrate all of you mothers that are out there creating art and helping others create art. I agree, Oliver. I do recognize that, that our sample, uh, in this study did end up looking quite similar from, from person to person. But this is this is one type of, of mother in the world of mothers that are out there. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, episode one in a continuing series. We do want to hear from, from other folks that have made this work or didn't think they could make this work uh, and, and continue this conversation because at the heart of this was the, the notion that we discovered that no one is talking about this. No one is talking about the role of your life outside of opera in the opera world and how it can fuel and inform the art that you create. So uh, stay tuned for our next installment. Opera class, sports radio crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who will join Octavian and Don Giovanni in the final four of the greatest opera bracket? That's next on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. When started in May 2019 as a slow-burning arts advocacy and independent journalism site, Zach Fickelstein's MiddleClassArtist.com has blown to a has blown up to a critical source of COVID crisis-related arts reporting. And as of March 2020, MiddleClassArtist.com has a hundred thousand hits. He's the voice of the people, he is. Oliver. Heard on Opera Box Score at the site's inception, tenor Zach Fickelstein used to write about business, the business side of singing, balancing budgets, taxes. Now he and a growing team of... The real glamour of the singing world. Yes. He and a growing team of contributors write about the classical musical world, classical music world, uh, how it's on fire. That was a great reading, Oliver. Um, so, Nailed it. Yeah, so we've been... Um, talking about middle-class artists for a few months now and uh, we just want you guys our listeners to check it out middleclassartist.com what, what I think is so important about the work that Zach does and kind of what it's turned into is that like 
the the business of singing has been something and when I say business, I mean like business with a capital B. The business of singing is something that isn't taught to you. It is kind of a survival of the fittest. If you're either smart enough and have enough context clues to just figure it out, you do it. Uh, if you don't, then there's a really good chance that you're not going to be successful in this industry because so much of this is about self-promotion, being self-made. Uh, and so the fact that he really digs in deep and, and makes it pretty transparent, like here's what's going on. This is how taxes are done. These are the things that you need to know. This is stuff that generations of singers should have had access to. We would have heard so many better voices if something like this was more transparent earlier on. Not just me being bitter about not knowing this at the beginning of my career, I promise. There are so many other things that need to be too. How do you build a durable, flexible, and successful classical arts career? What is happening in the classical music world right now? Who is paying their artists in the COVID era? Who is leaving them out in the cold, firing them by tweet? What is the classical music world going to look like when the COVID epidemic is over and how do we get there? Go to middleclassartist.com. This is Opera Box Score with George Cedarquist, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, Ashley Hardgrave, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Last week, Matt and I tackled Michigan Opera Theater's greatest opera bracket, bringing Der Rosenkavalier and Don Giovanni into the finals. But who are they facing off against this week? This time, it's George's and Oliver's turn to see what other operas will make it into the final four. Here's how it works. Each of us is taking a region of this uh, bracket, populated by eight operas, and we're giving you our takes on the, on the criteria of the opera's popularity of music, strength of libretto, calling card roles for legendary singers, audience and connoisseur favorite status, and then we're picking winners based on that. We have, First up, we have the English language bracket, which I believe is George's bracket. George, take it away. That is my bracket. Thanks so much, Weston, for the intro. I um, am excited to work through these and excited to share this part of the uh, face-off with Oliver. Um, it's not going to be as epic, I don't think, as your battle last week, Weston. That's and maybe for the best. Well. <laughs> Before I do, just got to give a quick shout out to all the folks that were behind that bracket on the Michigan Opera Theater website. Uh, Catherine DeYoung, who was part of the studio artist bracket haha, at Michigan Opera Theater, wrote to me and she said that the bracket was the idea of the base in our studio, Alan Michael Jones, and was an entire studio artist effort, including... Avery Betcher, soprano, Edward Graves, tenor, Darren Drone, baritone, and of course, Alan Michael Jones. So grateful to them for putting this together for us. Without further ado, let's get down to it. Uh, in the first round, Dead Man Walking versus Dr. Atomic. Dead Man Walking, of course, by Jake Heggie, which uh, was at Lyric Opera of Chicago this season before the coronavirus took effect. And Dr. Atomic... The um, opera by John Adams, famously directed. My boy John. Yeah, your boy, your boy John Adams. This is such a tricky call because Doctor Atomic. You know, the original production was directed by Peter Sellers. It was so impactful when it first came out, but Dead Man Walking has really, I think, kind of defined twentieth, excuse me, twenty first century opera in this country. It's really entered the repertoire at this point. And for that reason alone, 
Although Dr. Atomic has come back in new productions, there are so many productions of Dead Man Walking happening these days. I have to give it the nod. I also think that it's easier in a way to put on Dead Man Walking. Uh, Dr. Atomic requires more, um, I mean, I guess they both use, you know, pre-recorded stuff, but I feel like there's something about Dr. Atomic that you need more hi-fi or Wi-Fi or... Um, it feels more, it feels more expensive. You got to build a, you got to build a bomb for one thing. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You do, you do indeed. And speaking of bombs, um, in the next part of this first round here, to, to pit Ricky Ian Gordon's Grapes of Wrath against Porgy and Bess, I mean, this is one of those sort of underdog, overdog matchups for me. I mean, nobody would want to go head-to-head to, against Porgy and Bess in any opera competition. The piece is so rich musically. It's so important historically. This, to me, was an absolute blowout Porgy over Grapes of Wrath. Well, let's just say that, like, the subject matter of Grapes of Wrath is quintessential American story, but Porgy and Bess has the quintessential American music. I mean, can you get more American than Gershwin? Than Summertime in yeah. particular? I yeah. mean, like, 900 covers of that song later, of that aria <laughs> as a song later. Yeah. Here we are. <laughs> exactly. Not, not a lot of covers of Grapes of Wrath out there. And that's not a for damn lack of time. <laughs> but they're both the, about the, the same third length, part... though. So, just so you know, I mean, like, Porgy and Bess is a long ass opera, and um, so is Grapes of Wrath. Everybody, <laughs> it's a Grapes of Wrath. Even even cut runs over three hours. Actually, most of these operas in this English language region are all kind of long ass. Uh, the The third part of the first round was um, Stravinsky, The Rake's Progress, with the libretto by um, uh, W. H. Auden, against. Benjamin and Chester Britain's, Coleman. Chester Coleman, thank you. Shout out against uh, Benjamin Britten's Peter Grimes. Now, this to me smelled upset. And if this was a basketball game, this is when you would see a really strong team play not their best game against a team that could just upset them. And th- when you look at Peter Grimes, I'm surprised that Peter Grimes was the Britain choice in this region. Obviously, you've got to have something from Britain, but there are some big works by Britain out there, and I'm surprised that Peter Grimes was the, the team, as it were, that they put forward. It's an important opera. It's a big cast, but against something like Billy Budd, Albert Herring, which we talked about on the show a few weeks ago. I, I disagree with that point. I, I think Peter shocked. Grimes is the most prominent Britain opera <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of big opera houses. If you're going to do one... Britain Opera, it's Grimes. I mean, I I think that Race Progress is an amazing show, but I am shocked that you feel that way about Peter Grimes. <laughs> it's a it's, that it's a not the seminal Britain Opera. Yeah, I think that I if, don't... if there's one opera that Britain would represent himself with, it would be this one. So, well, it wouldn't be Gloriana. We can say that. <laughs> And I I do see where you're coming from, George, in that Peter Grimes does not encapsulate everything that is Benjamin Britten. But I do think if you're looking at a big opera house, and this is like a major, if you're looking at a major company, the first Britten opera that they're going to go to is Peter Grimes. If for no other reason, then it has something for, it has a leading lady. And and Billy Budd, you're going to have to, I, I don't think that, I think that all male operas are inherently just like a little bit more niche 
than mixed gender operas. That's a that's a good point, and certainly <laughs> one of our criteria operas. for picking winners was on um, calling card roles for legendary singers. And uh, you know, obviously, Billy Bed does not have any female voices in it at all. That said, when I look at Rake's progress, when I look at how difficult it is the complexity of that libretto, when I think about what Stravinsky was doing in terms of neoclassicism, I actually gave Rake's progress the upset here over Peter Grimes. I want, I'm waiting for Weston to chime in here because it is, it is uh, Stravinsky and he's our resident Russian block uh, expert. But uh, I do want to say that um, Stravinsky choosing Rake's progress is kind of falling into a theme that we might see throughout this whole bracket and the influence of the Enlightenment, the influence of Mozart, and all of the winners so far, uh, people that are advancing in this. There's something about... That's a good point, actually. There's something about forgiveness and, um, you know, belief that all humans are good that makes for particular good uh, operatic material. And it seems that well, that, it, that theme is thriving. It makes, for, it makes for relatable characters, right? I mean, uh, if you look at... Um, Peter Grimes, it's telling a story about real characters, but it's they're they're very they're very different characters. They're uh, they're often unpleasant. They're they're almost it's a it's a dark sort of opera. And Rake's progress is, is I, I mean I love Rake's progress. I, frankly, I'm not a big fan of neoclassicism as a genre, but the best argument for it, hands down is Rake's progress because it balances the humor, the uh, the Americana of it all, along with just a very, the, the, the level of, of emotional and intellectual constraint to which it's written really sells everything in a way that you can't do in any other way. And it's an extraordinary opera. Well, the Enlightenment is a good segue into the final part of the first round, which was Leonard Bernstein's Candide against Kurt Weill's street scene. Uh, I mean, again, Kurt Weill's got a very large repertoire. Street scene, uh, is is that his best foot forward? Is he putting forward his best scene, his best scene, his best team with something <laughs> like street scene? I am more with you here, George. Yeah, that this yeah. is kind of an offbeat choice for Weill. And I'm, I mean, con considering some of his collaborations with Bertolt Brecht, I, I think this is unusual. And and for me, uh, Candide, this was a this would be a real blowout. You know, this would be Duke against some you know Ivy League team here. Basically, I mean, the complexity of the Candide score, the catchiness of the melodies. Yes, we can argue if is it opera, is it music theater. It doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, Candide, I think is a stronger libretto and a more popular show. Okay, I just want to Agreed. say that, like, I don't know how if this racket, the people who built this racket are giving Candide a chance, why Sweeney Todd wasn't in this competition or why Dido Aeneas was in this competition, which would have beaten so many contenders that were uh, in this bracket. But uh, I'll go with you that Candide is a, maybe a more important work. Uh, street Scene is sort of a difficult opera and feels like it's trying to be jazz at one point, you know, when I think both Gershwin and Bernstein uh, accomplished the Americana-ish of, you know, the subject matter than... than I'm, more a, I'm more a fan of German vile myself, you know. Dare protagonist is where it's at. <laughs> I, will say, I will say, if you're wondering where Candide might have come from, I, uh, we will keep in mind that this bracket was built by young artists and yeah. the Bernstein centennial is fresh in all of our memories from <laughs> auditions for summer festivals. Yeah. 
Right. Although the roles are pretty evenly spread, you know, for young artists between something like Candide and say a, a, a excuse me, a Sondheim opera, something like um, Sweeney Todd. But you know, when the selection committee for the NCAAs puts together their brackets, not everybody gets invited to the big dance and some teams are inevitably overlooked. As we move on to the Sweet 16, so it's Dead Man Walking against Porgy and Bess. Now I know I talked before about the weight, the gravitas, the importance of Porgy and Bess. That said, here in the 21st century, when I'm picking this bracket and I'm picking winners, I still think that Dead Man Walking ultimately ha will have in this century as much impact as something like Porgy and Bess, and I'm picking it to go into the Elite Eight. All right. An edgy pick. I love it. It's an edgy pick, probably less of an edgy pick for the other part of the Sweet 16, Rake's Progress vs. Candide. At a certain point, Rake's Progress drives you insane. It drives you around the bend. The libretto is, is great, but it's almost too dense. The music, at some point in the evening, to me, gets so overwhelming and it all starts to sound the same and it doesn't have that blood in its veins that something like Candide does. And for me, specifically against Rake's Progress, I would pick Candide as a bigger audience favorite to go into the Elite Eight. This is I so... I see uh, Oliver just I'm shaking like... his head and rocking <laughs> back and forth. This is so surprising given that Candide is like a notorious black sheep of the music and theater world and that no one really knows entirely what to do with it. And that that like defiance of categorization is here working to its advantage. Yeah, it I is. And, and again, you know, we don't people. know what was behind the uh, the minds of the the MOT young artists and picking Candide over another Len Leonard Bernstein piece, perhaps um, something that there's not something out there that has quite as much music say. Uh, but it does take us into this, this Elite Eight uh, showdown. There's only one team that can go ahead into the Final Four, Jake Heggie's Dead Man Walking against Leonard Bernstein's Candide. I go back to our criteria that we decided on. Popularity of music, strength of the libretto, the calling card roles for legendary singers, and the audience favorite status. Again, just looking at these two operas, I do not see in any of those criteria how one of these shows could beat the other in any of those categories. Sometimes a great team in basketball will make it deep into the field only to realize that, not that it was an imposter, but that when it came, when push came to shove, it didn't have nearly the skills, the talent, of that other show. Want to know what it is? Take a listen. So there we go. Leonard Bernstein's Candide, something of a shocker, I would add, to come out of the English language bracket in the final four. For me, I put it back to how the Britain 
opera was not putting its best foot forward. That's in my opinion. I think Britain could have gone all the way had it been something like the little sweep. This is so weird. This and is this is like I putting America that in my the- quadrant was gonna here I was thinking that my quadrant was gonna be the most controversial pick. George <laughs> comes along and this says, is like, hold my beer. This is like the and US that's... soccer team, male men's soccer team, like getting to like the finals or something <laughs> like that of the World Cup. Um, okay, so what you all don't know is that Ashley has snuck into this call and uh, she is going to be adjudicating the final four. So maybe I'm getting a little bit of an advantage here by her getting to hear my my bracket. So I don't know, Ash, if you want to make your presence known or if you're just like being there sort of silently spying on this. I mean, I often silently spy, but I'll be honest with you, I'm still making notes and barely listening. So you have okay. at it. And- okay. So uh, I was assigned the French bracket and um, the operas mm-hmm. that we were given here, Carmen versus Samson Delilah, Tales of Hoffman versus Manon, Dialogues of the Carmelites versus Cendrillon and Faust versus Romeo and Juliet. Not the eight operas I would have necessarily picked to represent the best of what France has to offer. But I do want to just go and like give you my philosophy uh, in a nutshell. French opera is about storytelling. The French, I think more than any other nationality, really cares about the integrity of their librettos and the integrity of their storytelling. And we have to remember the origins of French opera uh, start with Lully, and Lully was, you know, best buds with Louis XIV, and so dance, you know, got into the DNA of French opera. And if it doesn't have dance, it doesn't feel French. So keep that in mind as we're going through these rounds. I'm going to start at the bottom of the bracket uh, with the two Gounod operas, Faust versus Romeo. Now, if we were talking about maybe, you know, 100 years ago or even 30 years ago, I think Faust might have come out of this out of this match. In terms of sheer popularity. Exactly. Uh, but I'm going to use my criteria, the criteria that we've set up uh, at the beginning of this. Um, the libretto, it's Shakespeare versus Goethe. And Faust feels German with its emphasis on folklore, for example, with the Radetule song of Marguerite or, you know, the magic of Mephistopheles, which is, feels very German. And also the attention to the comic scenes, such as that bit with Martha and Mephistopheles, which feels very much like, you know, working class. What we see a lot in German operas, the Germans love their working class. Whereas Romeo As Ju- punchlines. Yes, exactly. Whereas Romeo and Juliet uh, is sort of glomming on to, you know, the Englishness of Shakespeare. And I think that we love the French. I'm speaking on behalf of the French. We love the dramatic tightness of Romeo and Juliet and how much action there is and how, many, how much more the scenes advance the plot. Uh, and while still providing the romance. And, you know, you would think that Faust is about Faust and Marguerite, but really Faust is about Faust. And Romeo and Juliet is about this love story between these two characters and also gives a lot of opportunity for, um, for you know, for this love story to come through um, and to be the, the main draw of this show. And um, I feel like Juliet also has more opportunities to build her character and it's not just about one person as Faust is about Faust. Uh, Juliet gets 
an introductory arioso. She gets two full-blown arias. She is in a part of the four duets, the four love duets. And there's also the wedding scene. So for that reason, I think that Romeo comes away with it, especially since, you know, you can have really great moments for both Romeo and Juliet. And I want to just play this iconic, I mean, not iconic moment, but this sort of throwaway moment uh, in this opera that really allows both singers to shine. It's the first duet of Romeo and Juliet. It's the so-called madrigal. And this was a great introduction to many people of the uh, Corsican tenor, the French Corsican tenor, Roberto Alagna, uh, in this 1994 production from the Royal Opera House. This is the magical Ange Adorable. And the reason why I wanted to hear that is just because it also hints at music history. You know, this set piece feels very not romantic era music. It feels like it's referring to, you know, uh, air de cour or, you know, French, you know, late Renaissance music. I'm kind of, I'm a defender of this opera too, Oliver. I think it's a stronger opera than Faust overall. Oh, absolutely. And going back to your earlier point, um, a fun fact that I want to share is that like when the Metropolitan Opera was a young opera company back in the late 1800s, people used to joke that it should be called the Faust Spielhaus because the only opera that they seemed to be doing ever was Faust. Uh, and that, that op- it, Faust to me feels very stuffy and very old fashioned in a way that uh, Romeo and Juliet doesn't. And I'll say that like, it's, they're both the same length. They're both over three hours when you don't cut them, but somehow Faust feels interminable and there are just some scenes like the first act and that valgus poor what do you call that valgus poor knocked or whatever scene the walrus night scene those yeah. just go on those just <laughs> valgus go on. night knocked they go on and the long, soldiers so. choruses are kind of yeah. interminable and yeah i'm kind of i'm with you yeah I, I think romeo and juliet has aged a great deal better than faust yes so on to my next matchup it's dialogues of the carmelites and sandrion I don't understand how Sandrion made it into this bracket. I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's fine, but had Verter been the other choice, uh, this would have been a much more interesting matchup. Uh, Ooh, that would have been a wild match. Whether Massenet should have two bites of this apple anyway is another question. Well, that Gounod, we that's Gounod did so. Anyway, neither. I mean, Pelias would have been a better, a more interesting choice too. But uh, mm. neither operas are necessarily tunesmiths the way Massenet's Manon is. 
Uh, Veritaire to me has fantastic set pieces like the letter scene of Charlotte and the duet between Charlotte, well, some of the duets between Charlotte and Veritaire. And plus, Veritaire has Pourquoi me réveiller, which is a tenor, you know, um, standard. Uh, but can anyone who is not high mezzo actually name an aria from Cendrillon? Oh, That'd some, be a no. some coloraturists <laughs> sing that the fairy godmother's aria. But do you know what it's called? Enfant. Okay, you know it's I think, you're, the, yeah. you're one of the few, so. Anyway, likewise, Dialogues of the Carmelites is not the type of show that leaves the audience <laughs> whistling any tunes. Except uh, for me, but then again, it's me, so. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the, the, the entire, like, finale scene, I'm always singing that, you know, with a whoosh, It's great. <laughs> it that, is, that was the guillotine beheading, if you don't know the opera. It is one of the most terrifying and disturbing operas in the canon. So how do these two operas compete against each other? Can you put the finale of Carmelites up against any uh other masterpiece, you know, in the standard canon, and would it win? I mean, that finale of Carmelites is pure genius. Uh, yeah, it's up there with like Falstaff in yeah. terms of greatest opera finales. Oh, for sure. I will say that it is, uh, you know, French opera, uh, beginning with Lully, trying to distinguish itself from other national styles by establishing how the text is set and, um, Carmelites, Poulenc really might be the standard bearer for, you know, changing the way text was set in his era, just the way Lully did for his, for his era. And uh, is there really another opera after the 1957 Carmelites that, you know, carries the torch for French opera in the 20th century? I know that Weston would say, like, saint Foisson's Oh, I, I, I would say that, yes. Or even... <laughs> saint oh, I was just saying that today. It was so good. Or even Sariajo's L'Amour de Loin. But oh, oui. neither of those operas are really, you know, have been absorbed into the canon and have been appreciated by international audiences as much as Carmelites. So it might be the last great French opera. That's absolutely true. Oliver, and I'm hoping that Carmelites has a deep run into this bracket. I, I don't think there's another opera post-World War II that's not in English that's entered the canon, period. So the de-emphasis on male voices is true for both operas, which actually makes it attractive for colleges and conservatories because they tend to be women-heavy in the first place. Beside the fact that a couple of these roles are honkers. <laughs> you yeah. need to make some sound. And Carmelites, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I will say that what's going against Carmelites is that its storytelling is pretty obtuse compared to the more uh, easy-to-follow narrative of Cendrillon. But we have to remember that Carmelites comes from this, you know, 20th century, century era, and maybe, you know, it's pointillistic. I don't know if maybe that's the right word to use, but, you know, it's telling its story in dialogues, in, like, scenes. They're, they're not really duets. They're just conversations, and you have to sort it's of... right there in the title. Yep. There you go. Uh, and that is a new way of, you know, telling a story. Um, but ultimately, I'm going to go with Carmelites. Uh, and, I mean, that was obvious from the beginning. Uh, and to show that Poulain can compete with the whimsical music of Massenet's fairytale opera, which, once again, feels very German because French music isn't really about magic. It shouldn't be as much as it is in German music. Uh, there is lightness in Carmelites. It's very... It's few and far between, but there are moments of lightness. So we're going to listen to the little arioso of the chatty sister Constance. This is Anne-Marie Rode from the 1980 production of uh, Théâtre des Champs-Élysées, 
which starred Felicity Lott as Blanche and Regine Crespin as the Prioress. is a very important matchup. The Tales of Hoffman versus Manon, both of which have very strong chances of getting into the final four. Both premiered at the Opera Comique. Um, Hoffman has a hat trick with vehicles for a soprano who can sing all three heroines, uh, which would make it a more exciting show if you can find that one singer who can do all three heroines. And I'll say that uh, Hoffman has an advantage in that it has strong roles for that one soprano who can do all three heroines, the lead tenor role, a mezzo in Niklaus, and then the villains in a bass baritone role. Uh, but Manon is really, to me, an opera that's just a vehicle for one person, which is the title character. Yes, the tenor role is incredible, but it's seen much, yeah. less, much less than Manon is seen in this show. The role of Manon is comprehensive. It's almost like the norma of French opera, and it shows Massenet at his most melodic. There are three arias of Manon that make it into the soprano anthologies. Je suis encore, which in and of itself is such a complicated, tricky, I would say franchoyade is a, learn, a word I learned when I was studying French, which means it's just almost too French aria. It's a quintessential, you know, French gamine, you know, Zoe Deschanel type of thing. Um, you have to be so comfortable with the language to be successful in this aria because it goes from very fast recitation to, you know, flights of coloratura that turn on a dime. Then we have the accompagnato plus lament, adieu, notre petite table, which is a dramatic showstopper in this opera and really can win over audiences in a way that, you know, Mimi's farewell, you know, wins over the audience. And then we have the big flashy Couturin scene, which is, you know, look at me, look at me with a gavotte. Um, and then there are Manon's two duets with Desgouilleux, uh, the New Vivrons à Paris, and then the beautiful Saint-Sulpice scene, which begins with this prayer and then has right in the middle of it uh, what I think of as uh, her fourth aria, the Nesse Plus Manon. And plus, go on. Plus, on top of all of this, she also steals just about every scene that she's not that she's just in. Like the the fourth act gambling scene is still a showpiece for Manon, even though she's not even singing for all of it. Yeah, 
And so because it has so much music, it's been a great star maker for singers like Beverly Sills, uh, Victoria de los Angeles, uh, Renee Fleming, uh, Nelly Desai tried to do this, and I think she was pretty good at it. It wasn't a role that we associate with her, her with, but when she was in her prime, you know, she was obviously fantastic at the um, Coeur scene, and she was obviously a great actress, maybe a better actress than people who, you know, cut their teeth on this role. And nowadays we have somebody like Lizette Oropresa, who is, a, you know, a bel canto heroine, who is, you know, her voice is getting bigger and richer, and we can imagine her as being one of our generation's menons. I love the Cotru Bosch recording of it, too. Yes, with Alfredo Krauss, I agree. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as I said earlier, if you can get a soprano to take on the three heroines of Hoffman, somebody like Beverly Sills or Sutherland or Gubarova, then you have a fair matchup between, you know, roles. Um, and if it was just based on the first three acts of Manon, maybe Manon would take this. But you have to take into account that there is an act four and five <laughs> of Manon. And I would just as soon leave after the Saint-Sophie scene. And that's a great night of theater right there. You're done, you know. I think Manon suffers from weak fourth and fifth acts. Um, and, you know, I'm inclined to give it to Manon because it is so French. Like I said, I mean, um, Je suis encore is a very, very, like, it's the most French aria of all time in a way. And it has characters like Poussette and Rosette and Guillot. I mean, what amazing French names. And it's set, you know, in France, which gives it an advantage. Uh, and you even have a couplet, a very classic opera comique form like the couplet, uh, which uh, many characters sing. Like, I think uh, Guillaume de Montfortin sings one. But you have the best couplet maybe in all of opera, which is the Gavotte um, Obeisson of Manon, which you get to finish with a high D if you have it. Um, yeah, but I don't think that the fourth and fifth acts do many favors for for this opera. I mean, it, De Gruyere, who is a very virtuous character, does a 180 and becomes a gambler in the fourth act. And then we have like the deportation scene, which just doesn't feel very truthful. Or authentic. I remember, I remember the first time I watched that opera, I kept having to read the synopsis being like, wait a minute, what is happening here? What is going on? So working against Hoffman is that it is sort of a Frankenstein of an opera with no definitive roadmap of which music should be included, which scene should go when, what you know order should the acts be in. Uh, there are many different versions of it. And it's also not clear who composed one of the best pieces of the opera, which is the septet in the in the third in the Julietta act. But like I said, the soprano roles are a draw. The librettos, because of their problems, are sort of a draw. I think that Tales of Hoffman pulls ahead with um, the juicy role of the four villains in the bass baritone, and the very human and sympathetic character of Niklaus, who ironically is actually not human. <laughs> He's the the spirit or the the muse. And just so you know that Offenbach can actually go toe-to-toe with Massenet when it comes to passion, here is Richard Tucker singing the throat-busting Au Dieu de Calivresse from the Met in 1955.
All right. The fourth match is a no-brainer. If you take Dalila out of the equation, can you name any of the arias or sing any of the tunes of any other character besides Dalila? Does the Bacchanal count? Oh, I'm getting there. <laughs> so, sorry, Dalila. I love your three arias so much, and I'm always excited to see the Bacchanal in case we get some beautiful buns and nothing more than a dance belt. <laughs> oh, uh, there we go. But, Dalila, you're really just an oratorio, and you do not have the ubiquity of the Carmen Overture or the Toyodor, Toyodor song or the absolute genius that is Don Jose's flower song or a scene-stealing moment like Micaela's aria or the very French trope of having sidekick characters like Frasquita or Mercedes without whom, without whom you cannot put on a frothy moment like this. This is the quintet from the second act featuring Norma Burroughs, Jane Barbier, Michel Roux, and Michel, Michel Seneschal on the Schulte recording, which was supposed to have starred Shirley Barrett, but instead ended up starring Tatiana Troyanos. <laughs> Sometimes when you're watching the NCAA basketball tournament, you get a team in there that really has no business being there at all. Like they're going to get some t-shirts and some swag and then they're going to go back to like North Carolina or whatever. Uh, Samson would be that team. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Like a Meyer beer opera or La Juive would have been a better choice than Samson and Delilah. <laughs> Sansons did Where's write the... good music, but it's not vocal music with, with Delilah's is accepted. Yeah. Well, we are now in the Sweet 16, and it's Romeo versus the Carmelites. And uh, being based on history and being set in France gives Carmelites a strong advantage. But remember at the top of this, I said that dance is one of the critical distinguishing factors for French opera. And Carmelites does not have any dance. <laughs> and dance is so integral to uh, the role of Juliet. We even are introduced to her through a dance. This is Andre Esposito as Juliet from Nice in 1976.
enters into the uh, Sweet Six, the, the Elite Eight. Yeah, Elite it's, it's Eight. It's the yes. Elite Eight, and we are left with Tales of Hoffman and Carmen, which is tragic. A Battle of the Titans, because these are two operas that I love so much. I would put the trio that has Antonia, um, the mother, and uh, Doctor Miracola up against any ensemble at any opera. And I would put the septet, no matter who wrote it, up against any concertato from a Verdi opera or from Donizetti opera or anything like that. Uh, like I said, Hoffman has great roles for four voice types and a character tenor. But maybe it's actually that character tenor role who plays a little bit too big of a role in the end, halting the dramatic momentum of this opera. I will say that the love duets between Antonia and Hoffmann provide all the romance and you get some of that German magic in the Olympia music and in the music of Dr. Miracle even. Um, and then you get some sightseeing in Venice. I think that the Barcarolle, you know, might be one of opera's greatest moments, greatest tunes. And, you know, being in, uh, I think it's at Munich and being in Venice and being in um, wherever the... Um, um, Antonia Act happens. I forget. It's some. Is it? In, it's also in Germany, isn't it? It's in Germany, yeah. I think. So we have two scenes in Germany and one scene in um, in Venice. Uh, that idea of like taking a world tour is actually very French. Um, this idea goes back to festival operas like Les Fêtes Venetiennes, or um, you know, doing world tours uh, in an opera like L'Europe Galante of Campra, or Rameau's Les Andes Galantes. Uh, Bizet and his librettist Mayak focus their tourism on Spain and gypsies. And we get this iconic Segadilla music or the Habanera or the gypsy song, which are, you know, France's interpretation of Spain in a way that is just as iconic as Ravel's Bolero. So I'm really torn on this one. I think the flavor that the children's chorus provides, which is something that Massenet also used in Verter, uh, the French libido, uh, characterized by the um, way the soldiers harass <laughs> Micaela in the opening. Okay. It, I thought that, that's what she meant. I wasn't quite sure, though, but I got you. That, that really informs our, you know, 20th century understanding of French sexuality. And then what could be more French than a cigarette break, which just stops the action <laughs> altogether in the first act of Carmen? So let's listen to... Um, the Cigarette Girls Chorus from the first act of Carmen. Sometimes there is a final four or even like the final matchup, which happens in the bracket way earlier than you think. Yeah. It's 
that's why you pay attention so early on. Hoffman and Carmen is that matchup that you want to see on a Monday night for the big final prize, and you're getting it very early in this competition. For me, it's like when Federer and Nadal face off in the semifinals of the French Open. It's like, that's your final right there, you know? So we're left with Romeo and Carmen. And this is really tough for me because I I do love both of these operas, but I think Carmen is just overall a much more watchable opera and has the right amount of intimacy, humor, you know, ensemble singing and, you know, blood and guts drama. You know, you get a murder, you get um, this like spooky card aria, you know, where Carmen is like realizing that she's doomed while Fresquita and Mercedes are, you know, having flights of fancy thinking about their future husbands or whatever people that they're going to swindle, you know. Um, There's just so much more in Carmen that makes it just a complete show. And I think act two of Carmen can stand up against any act in any opera. It is so complete. It has so many different styles of music. Uh, The Toreador song, the Gypsy song, this uh, little um, military song that Don Jose sings, the uh, little castanet, you know, serenade that Carmen sings, followed by the flower song, which, as I said at the top of this, is maybe one of the most genius things ever composed. Uh, That aria unfolds like a flower, and not a single phrase is repeated. It's completely through composed. And it feels like you know where it's going, but every note of that aria is you know just genius the way it's that aria is built and then we have this crazy finale um which pre uh is like a like precedes or like portends something like Les Miserables you know and I don't even like Les Miserables but you can definitely see the influence that you know Bizet had on for example the tonight finale it's just Um, exciting yeah it just like it, and Oliver, I would go so far as to say that with the exception of the customs trio and act three, all of the music of Carmen is essential. Yeah. I, I don't, I think that trio is opera comic silliness and it's to lighten the mood because that's what the audience wanted and it's not bad. But if you cut it, the show doesn't suffer. And also, the rest of it is a, like a pretty taut yeah. construction. I might also ditch the duet between Don Jose and Escamillo, but I know that it's necessary for like, male you know dick swinging you know but uh here is one of my absolute favorite i mean matt is going to know this already because he's heard me talk about this before but here is one of the greatest moments in recorded history this is marilyn horn singing in the finale of carmen in the leonard bernstein recording Thank you. 
was like that was a signature move of Marilyn Horn that two octave leap from the attic down into the basement and then finishing in a place where no other singer will end in aria. I mean, you would think that Agnes Balza or Maria Callas would go for something crazy like that, but it's only Marilyn Horn that actually does it. And I wonder if she did that in the theater. I mean, I wasn't, you know, old enough to have experienced Marilyn Horn sing this role uh, in person, but it must have been something she did on stage because it's just. The- the Bernstein recording is not my favorite, but Horn's phrasings of this role, like they're so idiosyncratic and unique and like you have to listen to it just to get the data point because it's so unlike anything else. So this is quite a lineup then as we move into the final four. Don Giovanni, Rosencavalier, Carmen and Candide. In every final four, there's one team that is seated way lower than the others. The others are like one in two seeds. There's going to be something like a three or a four or a six seed that shows up. I think we all probably know which of these shows is that low seed. For these other three, none of these are probably going to have Ashley choking on her Dr. Pepper at the moment, right? So <laughs> she's got her work cut out for it to try and pick a final winner on next week's show. Someone's trying to build his handicap in from the get-go. <laughs> All right. Well. Did you reference Dr. Pepper? Because you know I'm currently in the South and we have that in IVs in every household here. So, oh my God, Ashley, it's like you're in my brain. This is bizarre. So, yeah. so tune in okay. next week, everybody, for the final four, and we will crown a winner of what is the greatest opera of all time next week. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in opera land this week. This just in, American composer Anthony Davis has been awarded a Pulitzer Prize in music for the opera The Central Park Five with a libretto by Richard Wesley. The opera, described in the Pulitzer citation as a courageous courageous operatic work marked by powerful vocal writing and sensitive orchestration that skillfully transforms a notorious example of contemporary injustice into something empathetic and hopeful, received its premiere last summer at Long Beach Opera. Cancellation season continues. Within the past 48 hours, Ravinia, the oldest American music festival, has pulled the plug on summer 2020 as has Chicago's Grant Park Music Festival, the Aspen Music Festival, Chautauqua Opera Company, and San Francisco's Marilla Opera Program. The San Francisco Opera has announced that it will stream performances from its archives beginning Sunday, May 9th. The company will begin with a recent performance of Boito's Mephistofele, starring Ramon Vargas and Patricia Reset, followed by I Capuletti e di Montecchi with Joyce DiDonato and Nicole Cabell, the company premiere of Jake Heggie's and Gene Shear's Moby Dick, and Lucrezia Borgia, starring Renee Fleming and Michael Fabiano. The LA Opera has reached agreements with unions regarding cancellations of The Marriage of Figaro and Pelleas et Melisande, performances which encompassed the remainder of the company's 2019-2020 season. Per agreements with unions, the company's Pelleas et Melisande was canceled on April 10th. Union employees hired for that production will be paid 100% of their contract rate through April 10th and 75% thereafter. Meanwhile, those hired for the Marriage of Figaro, which was set to kick off rehearsals on May 4th, will be paid 75% of their contract rate. Union benefits will also be paid in full. Dallas's in-series leads the charge onto the digital stage by programming an entirely virtual season of opera theater designed to be experienced from the comfort and safety of home for next year. Announcing this dramatic innovation on the date originally slated for in-series' annual gala, 
The enterprise and company plans to roll out specific details of the season throughout the coming months, culminating in the unveiling of a digital opera house in July. Artistic director Timothy Nelson teased an expanded season of at least 12 premieres, including feature-length films, opera shorts, episodic series, and audio experiences in the style of radio plays. Nelson has already assured us the season will be available free of charge in a statement released to patrons today. Who's up for a virtual watch party? Not long after the curtain came down on the Metropolitan Opera's digital gala, Italy's Teatro Maggio Musicale di Fiorentino in Florence jumped into the spotlight to offer their own presentation from home, featuring performances from Lisa Oropesa, Ambrogio Maestri, and many more fantastic talents. The gala ran into some technical difficulties in Spotternet connections over the course of the evening, but in the end, General Director Alexandra Pereira's message was what struck a chord. The concert showed that music could beat out anything. A new post from muckraking journalist and friend of the show, Zach Finkelstein, (laughs) digs into the numbers to show another reason why social distancing may continue to cause mayhem for classical music audiences until a vaccine for COVID-19 is available. Finkelstein writes, the billion-dollar question that will determine the fate of big hall classical music in America is how do we present music to an audience in a socially distanced hall? Financially, is it even possible? His analysis looks at how extended forecasts of social distancing will make performances in existing concert halls impossible due to safety and budgetary concerns. Finding that performing arts organizations may have no choice but to operate at minimal audience capacity the loss in potential ticket sales in a growing environment of economic insecurity could result in steep cuts and a spike in ticket prices from most organizations. Katerina Wagner, great-granddaughter of the composer Richard Wagner, has been diagnosed with a long-term illness that has forced her to step down from her position as artistic director of the Bayreuther Festspiele until further notice. Former managing directors of the festival Hans-Dieter Zense and Holger von Berg will step in as interim co-directors for now. The future of Wagner family involvement in the festival is currently unknown. Exit stage right, legendary mezzo-soprano and metropolitan opera stalwart Rosalind Elias has passed away at age 90. Elias made her company debut in 1954 in the role of the Valkyrie Grim Gerda and went on to perform over 50 different roles of the company in a staggering 687 performances including the world premieres of Erica and Samuel Barber's Vanessa and Charmaine and the composers Antony and Cleopatra. A sought-after singer in concert work as well as opera, Elias was a versatile singer at home in both comedy and drama and continued performing well into her 80s, even making her Broadway debut in 2011 in a revival of Sondheim's Follies. And on this day, the day of recording May 4th, in 1774, first performance of Niccolo Giomelli's Ciro Riconosciuto in Bologna in 1778, the first performance of Antonio Sacchini's L'Amore Soldato in London. In 1886, the gramophone, the first practical phonograph, was patented. In 1920, the first American orchestra to make a European tour occurred. The Symphony Society of New York performed at the Paris Opera House. In 1930, the birth of American soprano Roberta Peters and in 1938, the first performance of John Francesco Malipiero's Antonio e Cleopatra in Florence. And that's your two-minute drill.
So that was Rosalind Elias singing Must the Winter Come So Soon. There, there are not that many singers nowadays who you get to hear perform operatic music that was composed for their voice specifically. Mm. Uh, but that would be the, like, the primary example besides maybe Renee Fleming in A Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, and, and it's a, it's, it's such a phenomenal role too. I mean, uh, the, it's such an iconic American opera to have that be, to have it be the first one, you know, it's, it's, it's really something to hear. I also think that and, we, we heard this exact same recording a couple of two minutes reels ago when we were talking about Vanessa. I think maybe um, <laughs> I think Ashley chose to play this as well. So you can, you can always hear this twice. So that was the Dimitri Metropolis uh, with the Vienna Philharmonic uh, live recording. We're, we're just trying to share the experience of every young conservatory student who has a <laughs> classmate who was a mezzo-soprano because you heard this aria like at least once a month yeah. if you were ever in music school. But uh, what a career. I mean, this is one of the recent deaths that really has uh, ignited my Facebook uh, feed because I have so many... Yeah colleagues and friends who worked with her studied with her heard her live etc so i mean and she's 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 one of the last in that generation of singers we yeah. we still have a couple more with with us but uh, oh my god i'm so, tough tough times i'm so scared for lane teen price and marilyn horn and i love them i don't want anything bad to happen to them but i feel Ever. like they're in, they're inevitable and i'm going to be devastated so i just watched that um 1985 aida that the met uh, chose as its uh, audience audience pick. Was that the was that the Price Farewell performance with Casotto? Mm. Oh my God, I have not seen that in a long time. I don't think I've ever watched the whole thing. And um, man, what a performance! I mean, Simon Estes, to be honest with you, he steals the show uh, because he's the only person in the cast that is like the right. Not for the lack of trying, of Fiorenza <laughs> Casotto. <laughs> he's the only who person that's like does it. this crazy pantomime at the end of the judgment scene, where she like <laughs> zips back and forth one way or the other, looking for a way out. It's bizarre. No, it's amazing. <laughs> but uh, Simon Essie is the only person who's like really in his prime. Uh, James McCracken did not have a good night as Radames. It took him until the like the third act <laughs> to get warmed up. <laughs> But oh, uh, goodness. he delivers the goods in the in the Nile scene. But um, that's know, all you need. Yeah, even Lainstein Price is, <laughs> is not. I mean, she's I don't know how old in this in her sixties or something like that. She'd been performing for thirty five yeah. years or something yeah. like and that. And she's not fresh as a daisy, but in the moments that count, she brings it, and she can still float her high C in Opatria Mia, which is insane. And the ovation after she sings Opatria Mia is one of the you know iconic moments or legendary moments of that opera house. So, um, all the cancellations happened today, huh? <laughs> Everyone was just waiting for May. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's it's one of those things where uh, you have. I think behind the scenes, they've known that these were not going to be canceled for for months, but I, they were waiting for everyone else to do it. So. It was very nice of them to kind of do it all at once so we can uh, really cover them all in the same show. <laughs> they were thinking about <laughs> us. <laughs> I, I don't think that anyone has officially made statements about what the fall is going to look like. It's hard, it's, it's hard, to, be, uh, like it's hard to imagine that we're going to be getting good news yeah. in just a matter of yeah. months about the fall, but uh, it seems like they can really only focus on one thing at a time. Well, yeah. we do have some uh, good news in this uh, in the in series, of course, 
uh, kind of taking sort of a, a, a bold uh, stab at what to do uh, when your opera company can't, you know, open. Um, the, the the digital opera house idea is something we're going to be seeing a lot of, I predict, uh, coming up where people are going to be trying to figure out the best ways to, if not replicate the experience of going into uh, an opera house and seeing performances, but finding what what that means uh, for, not just for COVID, but for also for the future of opera in general, because, you know, a lot of companies do lots of really good work, but their, their online presence is less than stellar, not gonna name any names, um, but I think that this is an interesting opportunity um, to tr have people start to seriously sit down and figure out how do we get this medium out there in a form that is not necessarily live, does it even work? How well, can we do it? I'm looking. And I think forward, it's really interesting. I'm looking forward to hearing what uh, Michael Mays has to say about it. We'll have him on the show in two weeks. Next week mm -hmm. is our interview with uh, Russell Thomas, but uh, the following week, Michael will join us on the panel, and the topic for that show is going to be, what does opera look like online? You know, what content is being moved online, archival performances, and performances created especially for video conferencing. And, uh, you know, right. in series is, you know, ahead of the game by already announcing a whole you know, a season's worth of this type of content. But Michael and, has. You know, I feel like most, uh, a lot of companies are, are, you know, pulling through their archives, finding whatever videos they've made in the past and putting them online. But what's making the in series so interesting in my mind is the variety of stuff they're going to have on it, or at least announced at this point. Uh, films, shorts, series, um, radio play style things. All things that are more friendly to the environment that we're currently in, where Abs you, there's a lot less synchronization and mm -hmm. tuning right. and things like that that you really have to take into account. But Plus it gives everyone it's really the start. an opportunity. It's the start of a new genre. It's like we're in 1604 Absolutely. or something like that. Like the composers and, <laughs> and artists are trying to figure out how to use this medium. And, <laughs> they and, had lots of plagues in 1604 yeah. too. So I'm sure they. And, <laughs> and I think the pretty early, one to one. The I hope we can all find ways to incorporate mid-Atlantic accents into these radio plays. <laughs> I think the early works are important, but ultimately they're not going to be the ones that will be the most successful. Um, that we need to really figure out how to use this medium. But let's save that conversation for when Mark Michael Mays is on. Uh, I was surprised that you didn't want to jump on this Katharina Wagner story, Weston. Well, that's a kind of an, that one's a fascinating one to me too, because uh, you know me, I love me some Wagner, and I love me some we do Wagner know family drama. Uh, and I think that um, uh, this, uh, the the story of her stepping down, I think you know. Obviously, you know we wish her well and all that and all that sort of stuff. Um, one hopes that this is uh, this is temporary, but uh, it does uh, also lead us to start thinking about what does the Bayreuth Festival look like, not just post COVID, but also post Wagner family. Because even if it doesn't happen now, it's pretty inevitable that at some point the festival will be owned by someone who is uh, not owned, but, you know, in the artistic director will not be a member of the Wagner family. Uh, and I, I don't know if there's that much we can say at this point about um, what will, uh, what that would be without knowing who the permanent replacement would be. But uh, you do have, um, and, and well, of course, 
knowing the Wagner family, I would not be surprised if um, other branches of the Wagners were to reignite some old family drama and try to get back in on the action. But it did get me thinking about what the benefits are to separating the festival from the Wagner family um, in terms of how things are presented. Would it open up the house for performances of, of operas that are not by Wagner? You know, would it, would it um, help to sort of recontextualize Wagner's music and reconcile his sort of more negative aspects, shall we say, uh, with, um, with the future. And I, I think Katarina has done a pretty good job with her, uh, with her um, performances of attempting to, you know, continue the trend of really deconstructing uh, the negative aspects of Wagner's art. But I do think that it could be an interesting opportunity to really remove Wagner from the Wagner. And I think that's might be something to look out for. I think it's something that will change the festival considerably down the line. Uh, as to whether it'll happen now or in, you know, another 50 years, who's to say? Um, but what I do know is that I don't think the rest of the Wagners are going to give up the festival without a fight. So I did try to watch some of the Teatro Maggio Musicale Gala in real time, and boy, was that brutal. I mean, I don't know how they salvaged it. Um, but uh, there were so many technical issues that were so embarrassing and literally stopped the gala in its tracks. There was one moment where they were trying to get on the line with Diana Damrau, and we mm -hmm. could hear, the audience could hear her audio, but the host, this guy Pereira, he couldn't. And so he was talking over her. He's like, Diana, Diana. And she's like getting oh, ready no. to sing. It's like, it was terrible. <laughs> I feel so bad for her because she was trying to just do her best and be graceful about it. But it was really frustrating. I think the performance that um, really was the most touching and ended up, I think, being excerpted, you can find it on YouTube, was Lizette Oropresa singing the Willow song and uh, introducing it in perfect Italian to the Italian and, uh, audience. That's the one from uh, from Ballad of Baby Doe, yes, not from exactly. Otello. In, yeah, an English Willow <laughs> song, yeah. And, you know, she sang it a cappella, which somehow really worked. And, you know, she nailed the high, the high D or something like that. That's in I, that think it's a, I think it's a D. Yeah, we're really beautiful. But um, it wasn't as uh, seamless as the Metropolitan production. So we got something. Which, in retrospect, <laughs> which re in retrospect is like one of the crazy takeaways from that Met Gala is how little technical difficulties they had. Yeah. Just the one uh, Nicole Carr and Etienne Dupuis had to be bumped yeah. to later. But that's yeah. really shocking uh, well, based on how many Zoom calls I've had. <laughs> I, I wonder, because uh, I, I would love to like uh, sit down with someone from that Met broadcast and and any any of these companies that are doing these sort of gala type things and kind of just talk through the technical aspects of what was done. Um, because I, I almost suspect that the Met might have had a little bit of extra technical know-how since they know, do the live and HD series. Obviously, Zoom is not the same thing by any stretch of the imagination. But I've seen similar sort of ideas from the other arts, including Broadway and things like that. And it, it was really remarkable how smoothly the, uh, the Met performed. I almost wonder if there's a little bit of extra technical wizardry happening behind the scenes we just don't know about. Or money. 
so, or money. Yeah, um, we got <laughs> or both. <laughs> uh, I just want to shout out to Long Beach Opera, and I think that the Pulitzer panel knew that we were featuring Jenny Rivera, Jennifer Rivera, as one of our interview guests today. So they wanted to help us make this a very round episode by including Long Beach <laughs> Opera in our two-minute drill. So congratulations to Anthony Davis. And I don't know why Richard Wesley didn't also get the Pulitzer Prize, but I guess it's a composition award. Uh, and congratulations to Long Beach Opera for the Central Park Five. And thank you to George for paying off the Pulitzer Committee for us. Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. So, anybody got a good call this week? I have a bit of a good call. Um, I was uh, kind of thinking about um, uh, our our friend of the show, David T. Little, uh, the composer, uh, and I decided to kind of go searching for more of his uh, stuff to beef up my library, uh, my music library, and during these tough times and um i I found uh his band camp and then i got down this huge rabbit hole on band camp of all of these indie composers and performers of stuff that you know this is the underground classical music scene and i really got into it uh and uh it's a really good way if you're looking for a way to support um maybe less uh, large-scale artists, um, smaller-scale composers and performers, uh, check out uh, going down the uh, the Bandcamp uh, rabbit hole because it's a great way to give money pretty directly to those artists. Uh, you can donate on a lot of their pages, and you can uh, find music that you never found before. And uh, that was my good call for this week. I'll throw one in. A uh, friend of the show, Nicholas Tamanya. Uh, is part of a brand new recording of a bizarre Rococo opera by, I guess it's Vin, maybe the composer is Vinci, called uh, Gismondo Re di Polonia. Gismondo, the Polish king, Leonardo Vinci, which stars Max Cencic, who recently lost his father. So mm. we're sorry, Max, um, but also has Nicholas Tamania uh, as in the role of Hermano. Uh, and that is great for uh, Nicholas to be on a complete recording because we need to hear more of him. So check out Gismondo, Re di Polonia. And for those of you who really just want to keep listening to more opera, but maybe you have a hard time listening to people singing words while you're doing work, <laughs> uh, a fun genre of of musical piece that I rediscovered this week are the... Uh, Franz Liszt reminiscences of different operas where he'll take a couple themes from them and weave them into the absolute most bonkers 20 minutes of piano music you will ever hear in your entire lives. Accurate. Um, the ones from Norma, Don Giovanni, and uh, the Huguenots have been my favorites that I've listened to so far. So That's your good I, call? You're like 200 years late on that one. <laughs> I knew about, I, so I knew about Norma and I knew about Don, and I knew about Don Juan, but yeah. I didn't know that there were like 15 others. Yeah. No, there's a, uh, there's actually a pianist named Leslie Howard who recorded like all of them on Hyperion, so you can hear all of them. So. They are bananas. Yeah, they're really fun. So, all right, we're gonna wrap it up with a good call, bad call here. This one from Oliver Camacho. He says, "Congratulations again to Long Beach Opera for your part in the recent Pulitzer Prize win." You can also check out Long Beach Opera's Artist Afternoons. It's original content. It gives the company's artists a platform to showcase their varied talents. That's 4 p.m. Pacific time 
Monday through Thursday on LBO's Facebook page. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell at VoxerShorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. Twitter, at Opera Box Score. This podcast version of our show is available wherever you get your pods. Do us a favor, do yourself a favor, share it with a friend. The creative consultants for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. Thanks again to our guests, Janai Brueger, Juliet Petrus, Brenda Ray, Laura Strickling, Jennifer Rivera, Alexandra Scotchelis, and Lydia Yankovskaya. For Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, however physically distanced you may or may not be. We're back with an all-new podcast next week. It's our team's interview with tenor Russell Thomas, the greatest opera final four, and our hot takes on the weeks of opera news. Join us. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. First and foremost, in these surreal times, I hope that you and the people that you love are healthy and safe. Here at the OBS, we continue to do our show, and we're continuing to document all things opera-related in the time of corona, and we want to hear your voice. Are you an employee of the opera world whose work has been affected by COVID-19, a singer who has lost a job or gained a different job, a fan who's desperate to see something live in person and can't, let us know how you're coping with your own shelter-in-place order. Send your message or your voice memo up to 60 seconds to operaboxscore at gmail.com and we might feature you on our show. We want to hear from you.